Hey guys, welcome. Uh, have a seat. My name is Arnaldo. Um, I want to extend an extra warm welcome to you if this is your first time here or you're visiting with us. I, I should say, uh, if there are children here um, and parents, you would like uh, to send your children over to Anchor Kids or to Babies, we are open there now. Uh, so please go ahead and do so. Um, again, I want to uh, uh, just thank you guys for being here. And I want to tell you just a little, about, a little bit about what we do here and what we're about here. And I'm going to say from the front what I would like you to leave with today. And it's this, a deeper acknowledgement, a deeper understanding of the reality of this Christ man, Jesus, who has invaded human history to turn everything upside down and to recreate everything. And Anchor is just a small part of that in a much larger tapestry, in a much larger picture. And we're, we're excited that you're here with us uh, uh, to maybe join us in community as we are on mission for Jesus. So with that said, we're in the middle of a prayer series at the moment. And, and prayer is something that maybe a lot of us may not think as the most important activity, the most important thing that we could ever, ever, ever be a part of. Let me just grab my quote. Tim Keller says this. He says about prayer, prayer is personal, communicative response to the knowledge of God. He says prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way that we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer, listen, prayer simply is the key to everything we need to do and be in life. We must learn to pray. We have to. And that's the burden of Matt and the rest of the leadership team here at Anchor is that we must learn to pray because that is our life. That is our breath. That is where we get our sustenance from. But this is, this is the thing. Today is not going to be an easy task for me. Uh, as we talk about what it means to uh, serve and live in a world of a sovereign God and yet say that our prayers matter, that our prayer changes things, and that our choices are free choices. I mean, what does all that mean? And I'm comforted by the fact that Christians have been struggling with this, been wrestling with this for centuries and millennia. So I'm not alone up here today. I'm comforted by that. Uh, but I do pray and hope that a little bit of light will be shed. But my burden here this morning is not to give you a philosophical treatise on how divine sovereignty and human responsibility mingle. There's a time and a place for that, and some of that will bleed through, but that's not my purpose. My purpose, my express burden and purpose here this morning as we open up the scriptures together is this. That we would walk away being awed by a God who is utterly and uncontestably in control. And yet calls us to partner with him as we commune with him in prayer. That's my burden. My burden is that you wouldn't walk out of here saying, well, God is sovereign and therefore it doesn't matter what I say or do or pray or act or will or desire. In fact, it matters all the more. And that's my burden here this morning. But before we get straight into it, I want to offer us 
a warning. A warning to be humble about entering into these things that are mysterious. And yet hope because God has revealed these things to us. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, speaking then when Jesus comes back and reveals all things. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So even though we can't say everything that there is to know about this, we could say some things that are true about these things. So with that said, I want to pray if you can join me. Uh, and if you agree with my prayer, I want you to say amen. Father, thank you for today. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. Uh, we do not want to take this for granted. Lord, I do not want to take this opportunity for granted. And I pray, Lord, that whatever will be helpful for your people here today, that you will help me to remember it. But anything that's going to be unhelpful, Lord, help me to forget. And I pray more than anything, Lord, that those who are far from you here today, that will be, they will be drawn near by the power and beauty of your Holy Spirit. So we thank you for all these things, and I pray now that you would help me speak and that you would help all of us listen. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you guys have met my, um, my five-year-old, Anthony. He's not here today. He's with his grandparents hanging out, probably at the beach, having fish and chips. Um, but if you've ever met him, I, I think he's a pretty cool kid, okay? But it, he's, he's a bit of a 35-year-old lawyer stuck inside a five-year-old's body. And if you've met him, and if you've had any conversations with him, you, you would kind of know what I mean. Now, if you've ever seen Modern Family, he's like Manny. He, he, just, he loves to deliberate. He loves to talk, right? And, and generally, our Friday nights would look something like this. I say, hey, Anthony, uh, it's Friday night. You don't have school tomorrow. He's in kindergarten. You don't have school tomorrow. These are your choices. We can either play Xbox, right, or we can watch a movie, you know, Avengers, whatever you'd like. So he'll, he'll look at me, um, you know, with big brown eyes, and he'll, he'll go, hmm, let, let, me, let me think. Hold on, hold on. Just, 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 just let me think. He'll come back to me, and he'll say, okay, yes. I'm like, yes to what? He goes, well, we'll, we'll play Xbox, and then we'll watch a movie. I'm like, well, wait, no, chill. Uh, it's either Xbox or a movie. And he'll say, okay, it's Xbox and then a movie. I'm like, no, and oftentimes we end up doing nothing or, or I just end up sending him to bed or if he's persistent enough, sometimes we do both. But generally, generally, it's gonna be one or the other. He can't have his cake and eat it too. And this charge of not having your cake and eat it too is often leveled against Christians by very thoughtful people. Who, who look at what we say about a God who's totally in control, and yet you say what you pray matters, that it even matters that you pray. How does that make any sense? So generally what we do here at Anchor is we take one passage and we'll go through it. We're going to be going through a lot of passages today because I want to do a couple things. I don't, one thing I don't want to do is assume that maybe you, you believe that there's a God who is sovereign, I don't want to assume that you came in thinking that. So what I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be going through a tour of the scriptures and showing us what the Bible itself, what God's word itself says about God himself. And then we'll be looking at some scriptures that show us that, well, what we do actually still matters. 
That's, that's the what question. What is sovereignty? And, and what is prayer and human responsibility? And then, when we've answered in part the what question, we're going to move into the how question. How does that, that actually relate to one another? And finally, so that that doesn't stay on the shelf of theology, some high, high shelf of theology, what we're going to do, we're going to bring it down, and we're going to look at a man who prayed to a sovereign God and how that can shape our prayers as we pray to a sovereign God. So buckle your seatbelts. That was the intro. We're going to get into it now. Okay, so uh, if you want to turn, if you're that quick, go ahead, but the, the, the scriptures will be up on the screen. What does the Bible say about God's sovereignty? Psalm 135.6 says this, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Now, let me give you a clue here. Whenever you see in scripture, these two things put together, heaven and earth, what that's saying is everything, everything in between, the heavens and the earth and everything in between. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah 48, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring, listen, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my counsel from a far country, I, listen, I have spoken and I will bring to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Daniel 4, this is a prayer of a pagan king called Nebuchadnezzar. He said this after he was humbled by God. He said, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Psalm 29.10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. I'm not done. Nehemiah 9, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and the heavens of heaven with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, and the hosts of heaven worship you. 1 Chronicles, David prays this beautiful prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, all these things seem big and lofty, and God, yes, could be in control of the big things, but how about, how about the smaller things? Matthew 10, 29, are not 
two sparrows sold for a penny. Can't you buy, you know, can't you buy a couple birds for cheap, Jesus is saying? And none, not one of them, will fall to the ground apart from your father. Colossians, by him, speaking of Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Again, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, everything. All things were created through him, for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I'm going to keep going. Just a couple more. Proverbs 21.1 says this, the king's heart, listen, the king's heart is a stream of water, right? It goes, goes anywhere, it's, but it's a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it, not the king, he, God, the Lord, turns it wherever he wills. Deuteronomy 32, and we'll end with this one. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. What? This is not the God I grew up with. And maybe this is not the God that you're accustomed to. And maybe this is not the God that you grew up with. But this is a God that Psalm, 7, uh, Psalm 33 says he opens his mouth and stars come out. Like that is amazing. And he is not only in control of governments, the king's heart, but he's in control of a bird that's worth 50 cents. This is a God who we don't play with. This is a God who is utterly and uncontestably in control of every detail in the universe. I remember hearing uh, this from R.C. Sproul one day. He said, there's not one maverick molecule in the universe. There's nothing that moves apart from him. In fact, we read that even everything is preserved in him. He preserves all things. And yet, listen, and yet we have to wrestle seriously with some questions. Like, okay, what does that actually mean for me? What does that mean for us? What does it mean that when I'm walking past my kid's bedroom, I pray Lord, save them. Rescue them. One day, when, when they're old enough to understand, rescue them. You are sovereign. I can do what I can do, but Lord, you are sovereign. You need to do this work. What does that mean? What does that do? And yet, we're going to be reading a, a few more passages, and none of what I just said relieves the tension that you and I are responsible people in this universe. It does not take away our responsibility. It does not take away our culpability, our, 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 uh, our stand to be, to be called to justice by this God. 
We're still responsible for what we do. And this is what I meant by saying this is a mystery. Leviticus 20 says this. God speaking to the Israelites after he rescued them. He said, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. So it seems to be that God is saying, okay, consecrate yourselves. You make yourselves holy. And yet, in the very next breath, he says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I will do this. I'm calling you to do this, and I will do this. Jeremiah 29. This is in the context of his, his people Israel who were taken away from their land into Babylon. They were in exile. And Jeremiah, this prophet, receives a letter, or rather sends a letter. It says this, For thus says the Lord, When the 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. I don't know if you've noticed anything there, but the Lord promises, I will visit you. I will do these things. And yet, and yet, they will seek him and find him. This is a God who is pursuing them and yet saying, you will pray to me with all your heart. And we know that they did. And it's through those prayers that God brought them back. Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. What? So, okay, so we still need laborers. We still need builders. We still need bricks. We still need cement. We still need workers. And yet it's saying you have all that and the Lord's not doing it. It's no point. Genesis 50. This is a story where Joseph has 12 older brothers. Uh, this guy called Joseph. And uh, older brothers are jealous of him because he's the favorite. He's a bit of a brat. And they catch him out, and they sell him into slavery into Egypt. And what happens many years later, he goes through jail. He's accused of rape. And all of these horrible things happen to him. And yet he rises to prominence as 2IC in all of Egypt. And then there's a famine, so all the surrounding cultures and, and places are coming into Egypt to get food. And this is what happens when he reveals himself to his brothers. As for you... So speaking to his brothers about what they did, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. I work at a Christian bookshop, and I work in the basement, so I don't get to listen to all the music playing 24-7, which is a blessing to me. But when I do go upstairs, when I do go upstairs, there's this song that just keeps on playing over and over and over again. And it says, Lord, you... 
these bad things you turned for good. But that's not what this is saying. It's not that God is waiting for bad things to happen and then he's going to jump in and rearrange a few things. This is saying that the very bad things that happened to Joseph, he meant them for good. He didn't just turn them for good. Luke 11, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened what father among you, if, he, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to you to those who ask? Ask, seek, knock. Last one, James. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. There is this tension running throughout the whole Bible saying God is in control and yet he calls you to act and pray and will and love and do things. So it's abundantly clear, listen, that God's in control. This guy, Abraham Cooper, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who's sovereign over all, does not scream, mine. Everything is his. And yet, we're responsible to act and to pray and to love and to sacrifice and to seek and to knock. So, this is what happens. Oftentimes, my own perverse heart will say, well, I have this theology of God's sovereignty, and therefore, what's the point of praying? How does it actually work? And if you have anything in your theological toolbox that you think about God that's a disincentive to pray, get rid of it. That's what I've been told. So therefore, I can't believe in a sovereign God. So how does this actually work? How does it work? So we have the what question. What is sovereignty? What, what are we responsible for? As we've seen the scripture go over and over and over and over and over again. But how does it actually work? I will put this forward to you. As I see God working in the scriptures, as I see the way that he interacts with his world, I see two things, okay? I see that God works immediately, he works immediately with his world. And by that, I don't mean that he works instantaneously. I mean that he works without something going in between him and what he does. But I also see the Lord working immediately, which means he uses something to enact, to do, to execute what he wants. Let me give you an example. John 2. A lot of us may be familiar with that. John 2, Jesus is hanging with his homies and his mom at a party, Right? And what happens at the party is the wine runs out. And I, I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm more from a wog culture, so if food runs out, that's like, that just can't happen. You, you over and above, you need to, you know, just really ramp up that Costco bill because if you run out, you're going to be embarrassed. And the wines run out. So mom, 
Mary mom goes up to Jesus and he goes, hook it up, do, do your thing. And he goes, hold on, this is, it's not my time yet. But he goes, he's my, you know, she's my mom, I'll do it. Fine, I'll, I'll bring out the wine. And he asks them to fill up these, these large jars of just water and he turns it into wine. There were no grapes, there was no fermentation. He took water and uh, does this get you? Does this blow your mind? He took water and turned it into wine. I mean, I wish I could do that with formula. It's so expensive at the moment, right? He took water and turned it into wine. He didn't use grapes or fermentation, but the Lord also works in a way that he uses things. Now, I don't know how long, I, I forget how long ago I read this, but I remember when I read this, this blew my socks off. Why? Because of a 1950s film called The Ten Commandments. Have you ever seen that? Who's, who's seen that old film? Nobody? I'm, I'm, I'm showing my age. Okay, sorry. Uh, there's this film of the Ten Commandments, and I remember this one scene when Moses goes to split the Red Sea. And in the scene, Moses takes his staff, he puts the staff down, and the Red Sea in about two or three minutes just parts, and the Israelites walk on dry ground. This is what actually happened. Exodus chapter 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not, is this is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. And by the way, if you read Exodus, that's a flat lie. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to them, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, an army, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Okay, that, the director got that one right. And stretch out your hands over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now listen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back. By a strong east wind all night. Call me a geek. When I read this for the first time, I was like, hold on. So everything that I've believed all my life about just Moses just instantly just parting the Red Sea, what did God do? He actually just left them there for a whole night. Just trembling in fear. There's an army just behind you. I don't know if you've ever been chased by an army. I haven't, but I can imagine, I can imagine, you know, with my kids on a donkey and I'm just running and there's an army behind me, 
all night. And what did the Lord do? He didn't just instantaneously do it. He could have, and yet he didn't. He used a strong east wind all night. Now, what does that make a difference for us? It's because God not only works immediately without something else, but he works immediately. And he even works through nature. He works through wind. And what is prayer? I've heard it said that prayer is God's breath in man returning to its maker. Prayer is God's breath Wind in man returning to its maker. And how dare we think that our prayers cannot become miracles. If you have, some, some scholars think maybe about a million Israelites there with their families. And they're just trembling in fear. And the Lord uses wind to create this miracle that's probably the most famous miracle in all of the scriptures. And maybe in our society, it's the most famous miracle, and he doesn't do it, in a sense, miraculously. He does it with a strong east wind all night, slowly, 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 slowly. He's pulling back the waters. He's pulling back the waters. He's pulling back the waters. And that's the way I see our prayers. God delights to work through the ordinary so often because he is majestic and he is grand and he is big and he is mysterious and he is sovereign but the Lord delights to work through the ordinary I would venture to say that God is more worldly he's more earthly than we think because he loves to work through even a strong east wind. And our prayers are but wind. They're speech. And he can work through that. And I believe that's where our prayers work. See, the Lord has ordained everything that is, is going to come to pass. Everything in eternity past and everything in eternity future. But he not only says what's going to happen... Listen, he not only says what's going to happen, he says how it's going to happen. And he has so chosen to use our prayers in order to bring about his plan. I mean, do we get that? That infuses our prayers with meaning and purpose and direction. Because he not only ordains the end, but how that's actually going to unfold. And listen, you need to know that he uses our prayers in order to bring about those ends. Is splitting a Red Sea a miracle? Yes. But I can show you a greater miracle. Someone who has went, who has gone from death to not caring about God, to thinking God is dead and irrelevant and nothing, to someone whose heart is alive for him. That, the new birth is what we call it. When someone becomes a Christian, that is a miracle. And how many of us here 
have witnessed those things? How many of us have prayed for those things to happen and they have happened? And how many of us are praying now and are getting tired of praying over and over and over again for your sister to become a Christian, for your wife or your husband to become a Christian, for your parents to become Christians? And it hasn't happened just yet. But let me encourage you, as Matt encouraged you last week, keep on praying because your prayers affect the world. And your prayers could be the very things that God uses in order to bring the new birth to this person. He doesn't just say what's going to happen. He says how it's going to happen. So I don't want to leave it there. I want to go into the text. Now, that was the intro. This is the sermon. I want to turn to Ephesians 1. If you have a Bible, please turn there, but the scriptures will be up top. Ephesians 1. And what I want us to see here, I want us to become better readers of scripture. I want us to be able to read the scriptures with more vigor, but also doing the hard work so we can mine from the scriptures, so we can be blessed by them. And I want you to pay particular attention, now I don't know if you're an English teacher here or not, to the verbs, to the doing words. Who's doing things here? Ephesians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which... He has, again, blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on, in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed, listen, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. Wow. I mean, what we don't see here also is that Paul is just on a rampage. Verse 3 to 14 is actually just one long run-on sentence. He would have failed English class if he would have written this as a paper. And he's just going on and on and on about what God has done for the Ephesians. And also, 
what he's done for us. And what has he done? What are the verbs? He blessed us. He chose us. Verse 4. Verse 5, he predestined us. He blessed us again in verse 6. He lavished on us the riches of his grace in verse 8. And he's made known to us in verse 9 the mystery of his will. And this is all God's doing. This isn't the Ephesians getting together and thinking, okay, how can we help God out here? How, how can he bless us? How can we? This is God initiating this. Now, to me, when I read this, I think, done deal. This is guaranteed. We, therefore, need to do nothing. But Paul continues. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks. God's sovereignty in the salvation and redemption and purpose in his people do not lead Paul to not pray. For this very reason, isn't only looking forward to what he's saying, but also looking back to what he said. Because of everything that has happened, because of what God has done, because he is sovereign, I pray. He goes on. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness, hear this word to you, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, that's us, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do we pray like that? I mean, that is packed with petitions, with askings that, Lord, you have done all these things in verse 3 to 14, but, Lord, do these things. You have already done these things, but I'm still praying that you would do these things. And my belief and my burden here is that it's through Paul's prayer that what God says in 3 to 14 is coming about and deepening and deepening in the lives of the Ephesians. So what God has said he will do, we pray. Because God chooses our prayers as vehicles for that. See, so often we think this. We think that our prayers are intruders on God's plan. I, I, don't, I, I grew up in Brooklyn uh, in, a, in a mainly um, African-American neighborhood. And I would always find, you know, girls just, just doing, you know, I, I don't know what this is called, jump rope. You know, so you, you've got one girl on one side, one girl on another, and they're just jumping rope. And then there's another one, right? She's about to jump in. She's about to jump in. She doesn't know when. She doesn't know when. She's got to get in there. And so often I feel that my prayers are like that. God is just running the world. I sort of just have to uh, squeeze in there and I have to intrude on his plan. 
But we are not intruders in his plan. We are instruments in his plan. Your prayers are not intruders into the plan of God. They are the thing that God uses to bring about his plan. So pray. And open this book. And if you don't own one of these, if you don't have one, I need to get one to you. If we don't have any more, come see me. I will get one to you this week. And we pray with this book open. And as we read it, for this reason. Now, Paul's talking about people in Turkey. About 1,900 years ago, 2,000 years ago, he's saying, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what I want to do is I want to open this up and say, anchor. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. If we're looking for fresh language to pray, open this book and pray it. Last week at our gospel community, we, we did just that. And it takes some time to get used to. And I encourage you to go home, take Ephesians 1, open it up, and read line by line by line and pray it back to God. Something like this. Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a prayer. And so often we get stuck, we get rutted, and sometimes a faulty theology of God's sovereignty gets in the way. I don't want you to discard God's sovereignty because the Bible doesn't. What I want you to do is say, okay, God, you have planned all these things, and you have weaved me into your plan. See, so often we think God has planned something, and then we're an afterthought. But God has planned it that you serve an intricate part in his plan. Do you get that here today, guys? You are a part of the outworking of his sovereign plan. And therefore, we pray. Therefore, we pray. And the depth of his plan is a little something like this. God creates the world good. Nothing bad in it does he create. He creates man and woman. And they decide that they would rather be the rulers of their world than submit to him as the ruler of their world, and they fall. They disobey. They break relationship. And God promises to send someone who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who was a part of the breaking of the relationship. And he does. Thousands and thousands of years later, he sends Jesus Christ. And this is his plan. And Jesus Christ lives a life that we cannot live. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He broke relationship with the Father never. And he died a death that we deserve because we were born with the proclivity to break relationship, but then we've also made choices to break that relationship. And he took the penalty for that. And he died on a cross, on a Roman, a brutal, it was a, it was a brutal execution. Naked, cold, almost alone. 
But there was one point where he was completely alone, and he cries out to his heavenly Father, why have you forsaken me? And the Father says nothing. And yet he said something three days later by raising him from the dead. And Jesus has ascended into heaven and will come back. And that's the gospel. And that's the mystery of his will that he's revealed to us. And our job here at Anchor is then to be pictures of what the new heavens and the new earth will look like. You're a postcard. You're a preview. You're a trailer for heaven. We are a part of his plan. We're not intruders in it. And if you're here and maybe you, you don't call yourself a Christian or, or, or you do, but maybe you've walked away from the faith, I invite you to embrace this plan and be a part of it. And this isn't something that only people who are far away from Jesus need. Every single day, what we need to wake up and do is remind ourselves that we're not God. He is. He's sovereign. And he calls us to be a part of his plan. So pray. Pray because he is sovereign. Pray because he uses your prayers as vehicles to bring about his sovereign plan. And we're going to do that just now. I'm going to bow. That doesn't mean you need to. I think our body language says a lot or could say a lot about what, how we pray to God. I, I, I want to think of him really now as my king and I'm his subject. So I don't want you to think that I'm more pious. I'm not. You can ask my wife and my close friends. I, I am doing this now as, as a visual representation of what we are. And we are subjects of the king. And he has included us in his plan. So if you would pray with me, that would be great. Father, we, we thank you now as your subjects, as your daughters, as your sons. Lord, we don't take it lightly that we get to approach the throne of grace, but we take it boldly because by the blood of your son we can approach the throne of grace. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we thank you for that. Lord, we praise you for that. We honor you for that. Lord, because it's nothing that we have done. These plans, these eternal, mysterious plans, and the way you are working them out did not generate in us, but in your mind. And you have chosen in that plan to include us and you have chosen to even store our prayers, as the book of Revelation says, that they are incense to you. So, Lord, as your son, as your sons and as your daughters, we pray now, Lord, that you will make this so palpable for us. That, that even in my life, that your sovereignty will lead me to prayer, not away from it. So, Lord, we, we thank you. And we pray for all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.